right, good morning. Did you survive the crazy day of weather yesterday? I've heard a lot of people talking about that. It was uh, one of the most interesting days weather-wise that I have uh, gone through in quite some time. But we are glad that you're here this morning. We're glad that the sun is shining, and we're looking forward to a good day of worship. I do hope that you have taken some time to prepare your heart. If you have not, we'll give you time in just a moment to be able to prepare yourself to come into the presence of God. When you think about that dynamic, it sometimes is overwhelming to me. I don't think about this each week that we come together, but when I take a moment and ponder what the scriptures speak about the presence of God, particularly in the book of Revelation where it speaks about Christ walking in our midst, that Christ is here with us when two or three are gathered, when his people are gathered, that he is here in a very special way. We are the habitation of God, the church. We know that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but as we come collectively, there's a unique sense of the presence of God, and I trust that you are able to sense that. I think if you do, it will enhance your ability to focus and to worship on to, to worship God and to really recognize a tremendous blessing that is ours to be able to gather together. We have some visitors with us. We're glad that you're here. We've had several people visiting over the last few weeks. Uh, some I've gotten to meet, not everyone, but we are glad that you're with us today. Uh, if you have a moment and you know how to work these codes, uh, there's a code in the bulletin that you can uh, take a moment and just put your name and uh, some information there that would help us get to know you better. If you would please take your bulletin for just a moment. i look through some announcements that are here. This is the beginning of what's called Holy Week or the Passion Week, uh, the le week leading up to the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Christ, a very important week in our Christian calendar. Next Sunday, or all this week, there's some extra things going on. Friday evening, we have a service here at 7 o'clock. We'll be observing the table. Always a sweet and precious time to gather here and to reflect on what Christ, the suffering of Christ. Sunrise breakfast is at 7.30. There's details about that, how you can sign up for those things. And then our family Easter service, no nursery next week. We'll all be meeting in here, and that starts at the normal 10 o'clock time. So please take a moment, look through that. We have some other things coming up in April. Uh, Guy's Theology Night on the 24th. Walk for Life is this afternoon at 3. And then there is a special uh, golf event for Hope for Appalachia on May the 6th. So write those things down if you would, and uh, participate if you are able. Each Sunday, we go into our time of preparation of heart for the worship service with a verse of gospel assurance. It's one of those thoughts and truths that link us to the gospel, that tie our assurance, that tie our confession, our repentance, our walk with the Lord to something more than just our feeling. It is tied to the truth of God's word. Isaiah 53 Five is a tremendous text that speaks of the truth of what Christ was going to endure. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him 
was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Let that settle in your heart as you prepare to come to worship God. stand if you would please as the scriptures call us to worship today our reading is taken from Psalm 118 it's a long psalm and I've just uh, selected a few verses to read but I think it will capture your attention because it is the portion of scripture that the people cry out when Jesus comes in his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem Psalm 118 oh give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever.
our confession is from the Baptist Catechism, question number 23. And the question is, what is the misery into which all mankind fell through Adam's first sin? And our response? All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Let's pray. Father, we were reminded by this question and our response to it, Father, of our fallenness, Father, of what that incurs, your wrath and the curse that it brings with it. And Father, we, we cry out as the psalmist, as we heard this morning, O Lord, save us, save us, Lord, and bring us success, and that success being the forgiveness that we have sins, Father, the salvation that we have from your sacrifice. So, Father, we give you praise, and in the words of the psalmist, Lord, we give thanks to you, our God, for you are good, your steadfast love endures forever. Father, prepare our hearts, Lord, today for worship. Um, Father, as Brother Tim brings this message today, Father, may our hearts and our minds be receptive Father, may we be willing and able by your power to change what needs to be changed. Father, we love you because you first loved us. In your name we pray. Amen. Please stand. Yeah. 
As you are, lend your ears and attention to this God's holy word. A reading from the Gospel of John. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. 
The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that, they are, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. A reading from the book of Philippians. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Please stand.
few weeks ago, we introduced into this particular part of our liturgy an opportunity for us to focus on some of our gospel partners here at Randolph Street, missionaries, as well as 321 Network. Today is a very special day for Christ Community Church. If you remember, Alex and Seth were here several weeks ago sharing with us their burden to plant a church, Christ Community Baptist Church in Prestonsburg, Kentucky. And today is their launch of that church. They're doing kind of a preliminary run, if I might be able to say that, just uh, trying to work out the logistics. They're meeting in a high school there in Prestonsburg just to make sure everything works fine. The next Sunday, Easter Day, what a great day to launch a church. Next Sunday is their official launch where they're inviting the community to come in and so please be in prayer for them. We'll take a moment to pray for them this morning. There are some details in your bulletin. Uh, I trust that you would look over those, be faithful to pray for them this coming week and uh, asking God to do a special work. Two other uh, prayer or three other prayer requests that I wanted to bring to your attention as well. Brenda Green will be having surgery tomorrow. She's been through a long bout of difficulty with affection in her body and knee replacement and just several things, but you pray for her. She goes into surgery early tomorrow morning. Also on Tuesday, Charlotte Mayner uh, will be having a heart valve replacement at the Cleveland Clinic, so please be in prayer for her. They leave this afternoon to go up and be prepared for that. Also, Mickey uh, has been in and out of the hospital quite a bit. And certainly there's many, many other things that we are regularly praying for. So we're asking God to do a good work. Let's take a moment and lift these things before the Lord. Our Father, seldom do we ever bow our heads and look to you without thanksgiving on our lips, knowing that you are a great God knowing that you are sovereign, that you are omnipotent, that the things that you have ordained that you will bring to pass, that you are good, that you are wise, that we can trust you, Lord. We also come with thanksgiving knowing that you have sought us to pray. You have encouraged us to lift up our voices before you, to bring the desire, desires of our heart to you, to commune with you. And so, Lord, we lift up those requests before you today. We do pray for Charlotte Maynard, for Brenda Green as they have surgery coming up this week, as well as for Mickey and many others in our church that are going through very difficult physical and just spiritual and emotional dif uh, problems at this time. Lord, we also want to lift up Christ Community Church, Alex and Seth, their families, the core group there as they walk through trying to prepare themselves for next week's uh, launch into that city. We pray your richest of blessings upon them. Lord, I know that they are committed to preaching the word. They are committed to sending forth the gospel into that community. They are committed to see your people grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord God. And so, Lord, we pray your blessings upon them. Use the funds that we are sending to be of help to them. Lord, help our people to remember them, to engage fervently with these gospel partners in this part of our region. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you, Ashley, Keith, and Greg, our worship team, for leading us before the Lord. What an exciting song. As you think about the Passion Week, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, there's so many things that can capture your soul and cause your hearts to give much praise to our God. I've always been deeply moved by the phrase of Jesus Christ on the cross where he speaks about it is finished and I am glad that it is completely finished, taken care of, that God has given us a perfect salvation in Christ. There's two things that I want us to consider. I would ask you even as you walk into this Passion Week, as you read the scriptures that you would think upon, First of all, put yourself into the narrative as best you can. Don't just read it as an outsider, but try to put yourself into the very place of the people. Touch what they're touching, smell what they're smelling, hear what they are hearing. Sense the tensions of the crowd, the tensions of the people around you, the emotions of the people, the confusion that is there. Try to walk with Jesus. Try to get a sense of what he is experiencing as he walks through this week. I find that if we are able to do that, that it enhances greatly at least my understanding and appreciation for what Christ is doing. Secondly, and I think this is so very important, we see this all through the week, but I think if we don't bear this in mind, we can miss a lot. And that is that nothing happens during the Passion Week. Nothing happens during this week that is not, that is random or chance. Everything is determined by God. Listen to the commentary on this particular week by Peter as he's preaching in Acts chapter 2. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Again, in Acts 4, he says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to do. Jesus is moving toward the cross with very clear intention and purpose. What we are going to see in our sermon today, not only as we think about the triumphal entry of Christ, but really moving into Monday to see the two events there that are going to really set the stage, to set the heart uh, of what is going to take place during this week. I want us to understand that everything there is ordained as the Lord desires. Kostenberger, who has written a wonderful book on the final days of Jesus, I believe helps us set the mood of the people, of the city, of the crowds on that particular week. He says this, the year was A.D. 33. The excitement in the cool spring air of Jerusalem was palpable. Thousands of Jewish pilgrims had gathered from around the world for the upcoming Passover feast, and word had spread that Jesus a 30-something itinerant rabbi, prophet, and healer from Galilee had raised Lazarus from the dead and was staying at Bethany, a village just a couple of miles east of Jerusalem during the days prior to the Passover. 
Many had gone out to Bethany to see Jesus and Lazarus with the result that they believed in Jesus and returned to the capital city with reports of his miracle-working power to raise the dead. The Passover crowds in Jerusalem were like a powder keg ready for a spark, filled to the brim both with messianic fervor and hatred for Roman rule. Winds of revolution whipped through the air of Palestine throughout the first century, and Jesus, with his teaching authority and ability to capture the imagination of the masses, not least on account of his ability to heal and raise the dead, looked very much the part of the long-awaited Messiah. In order to gain and maintain power, the Romans could kill, which they did quite effectively. But how could they defeat a leader who could raise the dead at will? After observing the Sabbath, Friday evening through Saturday evening at Bethany, Jesus arose Sunday morning to enter the city of Jerusalem. It was March 29th, A.D. 33, the first day of the last week of his earthly life. Add to what Kostenberger says here, the ever-growing urgency of the religious leaders to try to get rid of this man, Jesus, that doesn't fit their mold, will not conform to their desires. Their frustration is at a boiling point. They must do something. I trust as I read these things that you are drawn in to what it was like on that particular day on that setting. The triumphal entry of Christ on that glorious Sunday was accompanied by shouts, Hosanna, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You can imagine the, the pilgrims crying out, the hundreds of people chanting in unison from Psalm 118, that psalm that spoke about the coming long-awaited Messiah. Jesus descends from the Mount of Olives and rides into Jerusalem in fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As the throngs of people cheered Jesus, Luke tells us that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What an amazing event that day as Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem. A day filled with preparation as you read all the backdrop of this particular day. It was a day filled with preparation, a day filled with much emotion, a day that left a group of men exhausted. Mark 11, 11 kind of gives us a very broad overview of that day. It says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, observing all the various things that were taking place in the temple, it says it was already late, and he went out to Bethany with his 12. This morning, rather than stopping to dwell on the triumphal entry of Christ, a passage that is often used on this day, I would like for us to move into Monday. 
there are two major events that are captured for us that take place on that Monday. One writer says that Monday was a day of action. These two events that took place on that particular day, remember, Jesus is full of intention as he carries them out. The cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. They are done intentionally and full of purpose, and these two events work together in such a way to really give us a look into what God is going to be doing throughout the week in many ways. Let's look at the first event. Let's go to Mark chapter 11. You could read these from any of the gospel accounts, but I'm going to go to Mark. We will allude to some of the others, but this is where we're going to spend most of our time. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. On the following day, the day after the entry of Christ, Sunday, the first day of the week, is when that happened after the Sabbath. So on this Monday, the following day, when they, Jesus and the twelve, came from Bethany, it says he was hungry. You're going to see Jesus and the 12 moving back and forth each day. Matter of fact, as you read the narrative account, one of the ways that you can kind of distinguish one day from another is to watch him move back into Bethany and then come back into the city of Jerusalem. And so Bethany was about two miles away. No doubt he stayed at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus people who were very close friends. He had raised Lazarus from the dead, so there's people traveling back and forth to see what's going on, to try to verify is Lazarus really alive. And so Bethany was a hot spot at that time. It is east of Jerusalem. It is located just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, and so he would come and come down through the Mount of Olives into the eastern gate each day as he would come into the city. It says that Jesus was hungry. It's interesting to think about that. We know that God does not experience need, and yet Christ and his humanity, Mark more than any other writer, Mark kind of portrays Jesus as the Son of God, portrays his humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. And so often Mark will highlight these human needs, these human limitations, these human emotions that Jesus felt and here he says he is hungry from this point he launches into it's not difficult to see what's taking place here but when we think about it in its context it can be difficult to really understand and so we need to look at it in detail verse 13 and seeing Jesus seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, speaking to the tree, the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. The fig tree, if you would have been living in that part of the world at that time and even today, the fig tree was the most common tree in Israel. It would normally bear two crops a year, 
spring and a fall, but primarily they're coming in the summer. It's kind of interesting, the tradition that the leaves fall off in the fall, a little knob begins to appear on the fig tree. That little knob grows into fruit. In the spring, that little knob of fruit is already there, and then the leaves come on the tree. And sometime in June, then, you're able to harvest these particular fruits. And so Jesus sees this tree, the leaves are there, and he recognizes that there's no fruit there to take care of his hunger. And Jesus curses the tree. And so the question we ask, what is the purpose behind this? If there is intention and purpose in everything, is Jesus just angry at this tree and curses it because he doesn't have anything to eat? It even goes on to make a very interesting statement saying that it is not the season for figs. So we know that there's something beyond just what meets the eye here. As is often the case in the New Testament, many things are flowing out of an understanding of the prophecies and the many things in the Old Testament that constantly point to the Messiah, that constantly point to what God is going to do through Christ, constantly point to how God is going to redeem his people. And so many of these things flow. And so often when you meet something in the New Testament that makes you scratch your head, what's this all about? Often the answer is found in the Old Testament. One person said this that I found very, very helpful. Listen as I read. The account of the fig tree seems odd. Jesus expects to find figs on a fig tree but the figs are out of season. Yet Jesus' action is just as deliberate as his action of riding a donkey into Jerusalem the previous day in fulfillment of what the prophet had said. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem as Messiah, but despite being hungry, he finds no fruit. This is an acted parable recalling Micah 7. I would encourage you, we, don't, we won't take time today to go back and read Micah 7, but you, you will find so much that will be helpful in understanding this event. This is an acted parable recalling Micah 7 in which the prophet looks for early figs but finds none. In Micah's day, the parable taught that there were no righteous people in Israel because the leadership had let them down. The very situation that Jesus finds in Jerusalem when he arrives, finding no fruit, Jesus curses the fig tree. It's not really about just the hunger. It's not really about just the fact on this particular tree there are no figs. It is looking back into the Old Testament. It is looking at the reality that God demanded that his people bear fruit. He demanded that his religious leaders, the people that oversaw the kingdom, would be people that would point to them, that would prepare them for the Messiah, that would be obedient, would have the fruit of righteousness that would in every way indicate that they are the people of God. The fig tree beautifully illustrates exactly what Jesus finds in reality among the people of Israel. There was no fruit. 
If you went back to read in Micah chapter 7, you would see there that the leaders are corrupt in every way. The leaders, instead of worshiping God or worshiping idols, they're coming to the temple, putting on a pretense, but their hearts are so far away from God. And God is going to place a curse upon them. You read the history of Israel and you will find that they have been a people under the wrath of God in many ways through these many years because of their disobedience. Jesus Christ is coming and he curses the tree. Listen to some other passages in the Old Testament that speak of this same phenomenon with the fig tree. Hosea 9, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to this thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Rather than coming to God, they were worshiping Baal. They were worshiping false gods. Jeremiah chapter 8. Therefore they shall fall among the fallen, when I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. To anybody who would have been in the crowd, to have anybody who would have heard Jesus say these things that had recollection and understanding of the prophets, had understanding of what Jesus was speaking about here, would see the clear indication that Jesus is not just taking out his wrath on a fig tree. Jesus is clearly through this act speaking of judgment and curse that was going to come upon these people and literally upon himself. Think about fruit bearing. Just three days later, Jesus speaks another parable about fruit bearing, one that we know well from John 15. Jesus said, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may, or bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Jesus demanded, Jesus expected his people to bear fruit. Life is not about doing what we please. Life is about bringing glory and honor to God. We today must be the same thing. We must be fruit bearers. The main purpose, I believe, kind of summarizing these things of the fig tree is this, to show God's curse against the unfruitfulness of Israel, the corruption of the leadership, and the impending judgment that will come upon their nation for their disobedient and hypocritical ways. 
The fig tree serves as an interpretive guide for the cleansing of the temple, and it serves as a foreshadowing of the judgment that will be seen on the temple in 70 AD, where the Romans came in and destroyed the temple. It's found in Luke chapter 19, if you want to write that down. Let's move to the temple cleansing now. Probably more familiar in our minds than the cursing of the fig tree. More often than not, the cursing of the fig tree is really the significance is brought out on the second day. The next day they come in, they see that the fig tree is withered, and Jesus speaks about this in the sense of a lesson to pray and have faith. Cleansing of the temple. Let me read it in verses 11 through, excuse me, 15 through 19. Mark 11. It says, And they came to Jerusalem and entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, and they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. You remember this is the second cleansing of the temple. John records as the only gospel writer to record the first cleansing of the temple right at the very outset of the ministry of Jesus in his three-year ministry on this earth. Another little note, if you read the various accounts, Matthew, when you read through it, almost would seem as if the cleansing of the temple took place after Jesus had come into the city of Jerusalem, all the other gospel writers having it taking place on Monday. We see that Matthew, as a course of his writing, often will condense things. Pastor Jason has mentioned this many times as he preaches through the book of Acts, how chronology is not always that critical in the minds of the Bible writers. The truth is there. The lesson is there. The thing that they're wanting to hold on to. And so Matthew kind of merges some of these events together, whereas the other gospel writers separate them chronologically. And so he comes into the temple on Sunday. He looks around the temple. He sees all that's taking place. He goes back to Bethany, comes back in the next day, curses the fig tree on the way in, comes into the city, and in the city he goes to the temple and he begins to cleanse the temple. What's actually taking place here? If we would have lived at this time, would this have seemed odd to us that they were doing these things, buying and selling and doing all these things in the temple? Well, yes and no. You remember that people from Jewish people lived in many of the surrounding regions, many of the surrounding areas far away and would have to make a long journey. You remember at the Passover, one of the things that had to take place is a sacrifice at the Passover. Many people did not want to bring their lamb or their bullock or their pigeon or whatever it might be all the way to Jerusalem to offer that sacrifice. So therefore, when they got to Jerusalem, they were able to purchase 
a sacrifice. It made perfect sense. It was very legitimate. It's something that often took place. They also had to exchange their money into a currency that would be accepted in Jerusalem. If you've ever traveled abroad, you know that that's a part of what we're doing here, bringing it into temple tax money and various things that would be a part of coming to the Passover feast if you lived outside the region of Israel in that time. And so what's taking place here was fine, but the location was not fine. They had moved this, rather than outside of the temple, they had moved it within the context of the temple itself. And so Jesus comes in and he sees all of this going on. It is further complicated by the fact that there was no doubt under the table type dealings, various things where they were robbing the people, taking advantage of the people, doing all sorts of things that would go totally against what God would desire for his people, how they should act, the fruit of living a life that would clearly evidence God. And so Jesus walks into the context of this particular place, into the temple, seeing all these things. And he begins to scourge them. He makes scourges. He drives them. He turns over the tables and all the various things that take place. There are four things that stand out in verse 17 that I think help us understand the heart of Christ and what he is doing. There are things that I think, at least in my heart as I studied this week, that God really spoke to me about in my own particular and personal walk with him. Let's look at verse 17. It says, And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written... My house, my house. If you're familiar with the temple, you know that the temple was built for a house for God. Now we know that God does not dwell in houses made with hands. And yet, in the nation of Israel, they wanted a place for the glory of God to reside. You remember in the tabernacle that followed them around each place they went, there was this place called the Holiest of Holies. And in this Holiest of Holies, there was an ark, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the cherubim over that. And that was where the presence of God dwelt. That was where the atonement was made and all these various things. And so when we think about a dwelling place for God. The temple was a place that manifested the presence of God. The temple was a place that when you came into it, you came face to face with the glory and the grandeur of who God was. And so the temple was not just another building. The temple was my house. Listen to Jeremiah speak about the temple. It says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words about the sense of what they were doing in the temple in a wrong way. Behold, you trust, he's telling the people of Israel, in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house? Would you dare to pollute yourself in such a way and then come to this house 
the house that is built for my name where I dwell, my glory is, dare you come into my presence with this type of lifestyle, with this type of behavior, with this type of heart. It says, and then come to stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first. If you went back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, you would discover that in Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, because of their lack of love and respect for God Almighty, God destroyed Shiloh. And God is telling him, Jesus is saying, this is my house. We do not move and hold and handle and worship God in a way that is polluted. We recognize that we are sinners, but we are sinners cleansed by the blood of Christ. That's why we encourage you, even in the context of our worship time, that when you come into this place, this sacred place, we understand it's just walls, it's just carpet. But when we come in here and we meet with God, it takes on a special significance. The temple was always that place. It was the place where God dwelt. When Jesus walked into the temple and saw all that was going on, recognizing this was his house, this house was built for his name. This house represented who he was. And seeing the people stealing, seeing the people without any lack of understanding or love and reverence for the person of God Almighty, Jesus was moved to cleanse the temple. My house, he says, shall be called a house of prayer. A house of prayer. It was to be a place of worship. It was to be a place where men and women and people came in to speak and commune with God Almighty. It was a place that was special. It was a place where you brought in your sacrifice and you were made right with God, where the incense, the altar of incense before the very curtain of the holiest of holies would send that incense, which is a sign of the prayers of God's people, to take a place that was that holy, a place that had such wonderful purpose, and turn it into a den of thieves, to turn it into a den of robbers, to take something so sacred and make it so full of filth in the world and abomination. Can you get a sense of what it must have been like for Jesus to walk into that temple as he surveyed the temple after he had entered into the city and then goes out and comes back in the next day and sees all of this going on? Jesus was moved to deal with that. Isaiah 56, it says, And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, he says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. 
Their offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus is going to say here, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And so we see it as my house, it is a house of prayer, and it is a place for all nations. Israel was never to keep God centered in Israel. Israel was to be a light to the nations. All the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, it pointed to the fact that God was going to make a people from many nations. The word was to go forth. The truth was to go forth. God was to go forth through his people as a light to the Gentiles, a light to the non-Jewish people. You don't take a light and hide it under a bushel. You take a light and you set it up on a hillside so it could be seen from afar. Rather than taking this gospel to the Gentile nations, they'd taken this area where the Gentiles were allowed to come in and made it a place of commerce. Everything that God had intended to do with the temple as a means of glorifying his name, they are defiling. They have no desire for the nations. They have no desire to be a light to the nations. And God sees this and is moved. It says, you have made this very place a den of thieves. It wouldn't be the same, but you might be able to think of it in this way. It would be to a far greater degree than what I'm going to use in this illustration. But if you were to come in to our church service, you've come in here to worship the Lord. You've come in here to meet God face to face. You've come in here to hear from God. You've come in here for the word of God to speak to your heart. You've come in here to sing praise to God. Can you imagine if you walked into this space on a Sunday morning only to find all sorts of abomination, the vilest of sins taking place right before your eyes? to see people who had no desire for God Almighty, to see people who lived in the filth and the pleasures of this world come in and give only lip service to him. Can you imagine what that would make you feel like? It would draw us to a righteous indignation. It is important that we understand this sense of what Jesus is doing here. The glory of God's name is at stake. Who he is, what he calls for from his people. God's people are to be a constant witness of the person and character of Christ. The Spirit of God works to conform us into the image of Christ. There are certain things about us that are not becoming to the gospel, and we need to purge those things away. Constantly, the language of the New Testament is put off things that are not consistent with Christ and put on behavior and attitudes that are consistent with Christ. Let Christ bear in us the fruit of the Spirit, the things that do not mark the gospel. He says, walk worthy of the gospel, walk worthy of our calling, walk as children of light. All these various things that God constantly presses upon us. 
all of those things kind of come forth in a powerful way as we see God move in the cleansing of the temple. God's house, a place for his name, a place that would be a light to the Gentiles, a place where he would be worshiped, where people could come and commune with him. They had taken that very sacred space and made it a den of thieves and of robbers. And God's judgment is going to fall on them. You recognize that ultimately the judgment of God falls on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ takes that sin upon himself. The fig tree speaks of what's going to happen, the judgment's going to fall, the judgment of God. The cleansing of the temple sets those things in action. All throughout the remainder of the week, we see these things coming forth in the way Jesus interacts with the people, and then ultimately on the cross. There's a couple of things I want us to consider as we come to the conclusion here this morning. One is a thought that I find here in Mark verse eight, or 11, 18. It says, they were astonished at his teaching. Let me move up. I'm sorry, I lost my place there. I don't want to miss this because it's, it's very, very important. In the cleansing of the temple and what took place thereafter, you see this radical change. Rather than people selling, marketing, people corrupt, taking advantage of people, after the purging of the temple, two things take place. It's found in Matthew 21. It says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So you can imagine what Jesus is doing here. He is showing them this is the real purpose of the temple. This is what God's place is supposed to be like. It's not a den of robbers. It's not a place of thieves. But it's a place of God's mercy. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, in this space that he had cleansed, in this space where he had driven out these people. He wouldn't even let people walk in and carry certain things around. He wanted the space to do what God had intended it to do. And he heals the people. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple. So we see healing in the temple. Then we see these children beginning to give praise to God in the temple. The children are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. It says that the leaders were indignant and they said to him, do you hear these things that they're saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? A place that God had ordained to be a place of mercy, a place of healing, a place of praise and worship, Jesus cleansing the temple, restoring exactly what it should have been in the first place. What a powerful, powerful picture that he gives to us when we think about the intentional purpose of each of these events and where are they pointing to? Help me out. Where are they pointing to? 
They're pointing to Friday. They're pointing to the cross. They're pointing to the resurrection. They're pointing to what God is going to do in their midst. They're, it's like a parable that he is setting forth to proclaim the gospel. If we can think of it in that way, I think it enhances and gives these two events tremendous purpose. Let me go back to where I started. I apologize. I lost my place there for a moment. It's not because of old age, so I don't even want your minds to wander down that pathway. Okay. This is something that struck me when I was reading this week and studying. The power of the words and the teaching of Jesus Christ. It says the people, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Many, many times in the New Testament, the life of Christ, the Gospels, it uses this type of language. Just where people were astonished. Luke uses this term. It says the people were hanging on the words of Christ. I'm sure you have many times heard someone speak or read something or engaged in something and you were just hanging on every word. You anticipated something else coming. You were absolutely enthralled. You were fully engaged in the moment. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be there in person and listen to Jesus teach? Not only his words, but how he spoke. He spoke with one that had authority. He spoke of one that had compassion. He spoke of one that was overwhelmed and overcome with a zeal for the glory of God. Every fiber was moved within him as he spoke to the people, and the people were astonished. They were just, it was a remarkable thing to hear this man speak. He was humble in spirit. He was gentle of his mind and heart, and yet so powerful as he spoke the truths of God. Oh, might we pray that our hearts, this is what kept coming to me this week, might I read God's word with that type of a spirit? Might I listen to God's word be proclaimed and read and taught with that type of spirit? Certainly, we are not as engaging as a person as Jesus, but his words are truth. His words are breathed out from himself. There's something so incredibly unique about God's word that it should capture our hearts, it should capture our souls, it should capture our energy. It demands our attention. Oh, might we ask God as we enter into these times of worship, these times of listening to God's Word in our personal time with the Word of God, that we might be a people that would love His Word and respond to Christ the way these people did. I trust that as we read through the Passion Week narratives this week, that God would minister to our heart. We might not understand everything that Jesus is doing, but make sure we understand that what he is doing is full of purpose. It's just not random acts taking place during the course of the week that finally we get to the cross. Everything points to that moment. Everything is captured there. 
might we read it in a way that we can place ourselves there, that God would move in us in wonderful ways, that we would worship him throughout this week and give him praise and honor and glory. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that the history of these events is captured and written down for us to be able to see. But, oh God, they're so much more than history. They are words of life. They are words of you, our God. Father, help us to read these events and understand what you are doing. That each event has purpose. It is according to your plan. It is according to what you set forth from eternity past. Father, you are going to bring it to pass. And it is for your glory. It is for our good, for our redemption. Oh God, I pray that you would take this message today, use it in the hearts of your people, bring comfort, bring conviction, bring help, help us to understand who you are in a better and more clear way, help us to grow in grace. Oh God, use your word in whatever way you would desire Use it in a way that truly would honor your name. Father, we love you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. We, Oh, God, how we give you praise for the glorious good news of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Please stand.
song to sing at the end of this day. I encourage you to come back on Friday, worship as we think, as we meditate, as we ponder the sufferings of Christ on our behalf, as we partake of the table together and rejoice and commune with one another and commune with our God. I encourage you, if you're able, to come back for that next Sunday. Sunrise service at 7.30. We'll follow that with a nice meal, a time of fellowship, and then we will come together and we will celebrate the glorious truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Saturate your heart in these things this week. Come next week with your heart overflowing to give praise and honor and worship to a God who fully deserves those things. The Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our